Episode number 42, Harm Reduction in a COVID-19 World. Keeping today's workplace drug-free should not be confusing. This is the Clearing the Haze podcast, giving you the tools you need to most effectively address drug and alcohol use and decreased productivity in the workplace while investing in your positive company image. Now, here's your host, Chuck Marting. Every great story happened when someone decided not to give up. Author unknown. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Clearing the Haze. You know, harm reduction in a COVID-19 world. What a topic. There's been so much in the news lately and so much that I've read that I felt that I could not pass this subject up without at least mentioning it and giving you some food for thought and thinking about this because there's a lot of places right now that are looking into harm reduction, either states or other countries, and they're hoping that we're not paying attention because of all the background noise of COVID-19. So today, in this week's episode, we're going to talk about harm reduction in a COVID-19 world. The first time I had heard the term harm reduction was when I was a police officer conducting DUI enforcement in impaired driving. I was introduced to the world of ecstasy after making several impaired driving arrests with individuals who were leaving all-night raves. You know, I was soon learning all I could about this cultural scene, and because of this expertise I gained in that area of raves, I began teaching the subject of raves and club drugs to police department and agencies both in the state of Colorado and nationally. I can tell you during this time, I came in contact with a lot of different groups. But one group, group in particular was a group called Dance Safe. They classified themselves as a harm reduction group advocating for the safe use of ecstasy today and for tomorrow. So how did this work? What they did is they would have an individual approach a, a booth that they were at at a rave and they would test the substances that these individuals would purchase and then send them to be tested to ensure they purchased what they were told the pill or substance was from the dealer. Now that substance, it would then be returned to the individual later, the same substance that they gave them. And it would be identified for the individuals to document DanceSafe would document it with pictures and they would later post it on the DanceSafe website for other individuals in that area so that they that may have purchased that same type of ecstasy or drug and they may want to know if they were really getting what they paid for and this they did to help individuals avoid overdose and ingesting harmful substances that they purchased not knowing for sure if it was the drug they were expecting. So this was my first experience with a harm reduction group and even understanding what it was that they did. It was so foreign to me to see individuals approaching a booth and giving a drug that they just purchased from somebody that they, in most cases, didn't even know, but wanted it tested to make sure that it was exactly what, it, what they said it was when they bought it from that dealer. Hope that makes sense. What blew my mind is they would take a picture of it, take a little bit of it, test it real quick, 
and they would be able to tell them with a, a rapid test whether or not it was XTC or not. And their website was a really good tool as a police officer because I'd be able to go in there and go to their site and look at all these different pills that were being tested and what it was that was found in those pills. So it was a great resource, but at the same time, it really blew me away that instead of addressing the issue of one, illegal drug purchasing, number two, people utilizing these drugs to get high, but that they were doing this and handing it right back to them so that they could use this substance. And I, I, I just couldn't wrap my mind around that I, like I said, I had never heard of harm reduction or even knew what it was until that moment that I first met individuals with Dance Safe. So let's fast forward to today and we find the same harm reduction groups in that movement has moved forward with a lot of momentum. So effective in March of this year here in Colorado, House Bill 191263 the defelonization and possession for substances such as heroin, fentanyl, cocaine, and most other illicit drugs for single use is now a misdemeanor. Only two drugs remain in the felony possession area for these drugs, and those two drugs, ketamine and GHB. Presenters of this and supporters of this House bill say it is an effective way to stop arresting away the growing drug problem and also a way to save taxpayers money. The hope is by defelonizing certain levels of drug use and possession, people will be able to seek addiction treatment if they need it, rather than ending up in a cycle of drug use and incarceration. <laughs> wow, to me this is just unbelievable that this is the way that we're looking at both drug use and addiction right now. This House bill in the state of Colorado went into effect March of 2020. So this was something that if you weren't paying attention to, you didn't even know that it was signed into law, which is just incredible. And when I've talked to a lot of people that are here in the state of Colorado, they had no clue. It, they're dumbfounded when they hear about this law and that we have decriminalized it or defelonized it is what they're calling it and the reasons for doing that it, it, it just it, it, people are just amazed and it really shows how much isn't being sent out to the public when it comes to these house bills and what's going on and a lot of it is either one people are just tired of the noise and they don't want to hear about it or number two they see it but they really don't understand the implications that are going to happen by passing laws such as this one. And the third is people really don't really care. I mean, plain and simple. So let's understand some of the drugs that we're dealing with here in the state of Colorado. And then we're going to move on to some other areas of harm reduction, not only in the United States, but also in the world. In a report put out by Jade Recovery Drug and Alcohol Addiction Treatment Center here in Colorado. They talked about, in that recent report, drugs, and they identified the top drug addictions in Denver, Colorado. And those drugs were heroin, methamphetamine, prescription drugs such as benzodiazepines, 
and opioid painkillers. Now, I know a lot of what I have spoken on so far has been Colorado-specific, but what is really worrisome is this is not just a Colorado-specific issue. We are seeing this both nationally and worldwide. And I originally started looking into this more closely after reading an article on July 20th regarding the British Columbia Premier formally asking the federal government to decriminalize illegal drugs. Now, the B.C. Premier, John Horgan, says that the decriminalization of drugs would reduce the systematic stigma that is associated with illicit drug use and that it would support people to access the services needed and it would criminally prohibit ineffective processes that are going on right now in deterring drug use and criminalization of drug possession directly. He then stated that drug possession directly leads to both individuals and a systematic stigma and discrimination that prevents people from seeking services. Now, the Premier's letter urges Ottawa to develop a national plan to move towards a change in policy around controlled substances for personal use. It's interesting to note that British Columbia has struggled in dealing with both the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and the ongoing overdose crisis they, they are experiencing. They also feel the recent spike in overdose deaths is due to more drug users using alone and a more toxic drug supply. So the BC Premier stated that we need to put as much time and effort and kindness and compassion into caring for people who use drugs as we have been in successfully battling and responding to the COVID-19 crisis. Now, we also had in this same week another article that was put out on the 19th just prior to the premier's statement that he had come out with and, and making the news. And the BC health officer who is identified as Dr. Bonnie Henry stated on the 19th that change is an important step in dealing with the province's ongoing overdose crisis. She said the bad news is we are not there yet and we still need to build the support system for people in the province who use drugs. We need to decriminalize the people in possession of controlled substances for personal use so that we can protect them from the highly toxic street drug supply and curtail the mounting number of preventable overdose deaths in British Columbia. The one statement in all of this that I'm in agreement with Dr. Henry is when she stated, we need to increase treatment, prevention, and educate strategies to affect real change. This is the key piece that most of the legalization of all drugs push that I've read and looked into are missing or they don't address. Now, another example of the decriminalization of drug use here in the United States is that of Oregon's treatment measure that will be on the November ballot of that state. At the time, Oregon voters will decide whether to pass a measure to decriminalize drug possession while using marijuana tax revenue 
to fund expanded substance misuse treatment services. Now, this announcement came a day after a separate Oregon measure to legalize psilocybin mushrooms for therapeutic use. <laughs> the chief petitioner of that measure in the state said, this initiative will save lives and we urgently need it right now because of the pandemic. It has exasperated Oregon's addiction epidemic. This initiative places emphasis on expanding drug treatment programs through the use of funds derived from existing cannabis tax revenues and also reframe drug addiction as a health issue by decriminalizing illegal substances and low-level possession and it would be considered a civil infraction punishable by a maximum of a $100 fine and no jail time. Now, I started looking into this a little bit more because I had heard about the legalization push for psilocybin mushrooms in the state of Oregon. I have a little brother that lives there, but I also read it in some publications that came out that there was a big push for this, for exactly what the petitioner of this, of this uh, bill had stated, that they're wanting to use it for therapeutic reasons. Now, if you had some studies and some other things that were involved with that, then then maybe but man i psilocybin mushrooms really now i know that we have people that use peyote and, and other substances but with all due respect the only people that i've ever run across in my life and during the time that i was a, a police officer that were ever in possession or use of psilocybin mushrooms were people that went to the Grateful Dead concerts and we would have a big influx of people coming in for that and they would always bring that in with them. But just recently, we've been seeing a lot of conversations surrounding this drug. And that concerns me because this is a drug that we don't test for. Employers don't test for. So how do you deal with it? And if we don't know that it is an issue and that it's something that's coming up, then how are we supposed to know that it's infiltrated our workplace? Now, here in Denver, in the state of Colorado, they decriminalize simple possession of psilocybin mushrooms. Now, a lot of people took it that since Denver did that, that that means that it's legal statewide, and that's not the case. It is a local ordinance or a city ordinance that uh, pertains specifically to Denver. So, but that's where it starts. And I'm sure sooner or later we'll have somebody that will present a bill trying to do just as Oregon's doing right now and make it a statewide therapeutic drug push for the legalization of possession and personal use of psilocybin mushrooms. So right now as well, if we're not paying attention, there are other states here in the United States that are making a push for similar type legalization measures. So Montana is trying to qualify a pair of marijuana legalization initiatives for November. Nebraska is attempting to submit signatures by the end of the month for proposed medical cannabis initiatives. 
And then out in Arizona, you have organizers that are making a legalization effort asking the state Supreme Court to instruct the Secretary of State to allow people to sign cannabis petitions digitally. Now, that request was denied. However, the advocates are still optimistic about their chances that they may be able to make this happen and have it on the ballot for November. South Dakota, they have a measure to legalize medical and recreational marijuana and are being made, uh, and they're hoping to have this on the November ballot as well. New Jersey legalization has been approved, putting a cannabis legalization referendum before the voters in November. Mississippi activists have gathered enough signatures in that state to qualify a medical cannabis legalization initiative for the November ballot. North Dakota has activists that say they plan to continue to campaign for a marijuana legalization initiative. Now, with all of this, it's pretty obvious that many people are wanting the availability and the ability to use illegal, illicit drugs without any type of legal repercussions. None of us want individuals to experience or be in pain. But are laws being pursued to allow individuals, many of whom may already be addicted to these types of drugs, is this really the answer? Now, from my experience interacting with people of addiction, I'm not convinced. A lot of elements are not being investigated or looked into. So what do I mean? Well, have we reached out to the families of these individuals that are addicted to substances? These individuals who know these people better than anyone else. And have we asked them what would help their loved one? Have we talked with addiction specialists and other drug and alcohol intervention specialists and what their years of practice and interactions with addicted individuals has told them that is the best approach in dealing with substance abuse and truly helping individuals recover. Most importantly, have we talked with the addicts themselves or other abusers on what they feel they most need or if legalization of drugs is the answer that will help them to seek out help in recovery and maybe even overcome the addiction they have dealt with for so long. I think before we pass laws and interject what we feel is best for these individuals or others, we need to talk to the qualified professionals and they should be invited to the table and consulted with to find an answer or a game plan to begin helping and addressing the growing addiction numbers we are seeing as a country and a nation every day. Legalizing or decriminalizing drugs for personal use and possession, in my opinion, and what I've seen and experienced is not the answer. I think that it is something that is going to make it more blatantly obvious than what it is right now. Yeah, it's in the shadows with a lot of people. And it's really not a topic that families want to discuss, either because of embarrassment or because they're hurt. And they're having to deal with this issue within their families. 
and they really don't want other people to know or have to experience or even answer questions that other people have regarding this and how they're dealing with it. It's a, rea it's a reality with these individuals. Another important element that I feel is missing from this is law enforcement. And I'm talking about local law enforcement. And we have groups like task force and people that are involved with in those type of operations that have tons of information. They have experiences they can relate. They can tell you what they've seen. And most of all, they can tell you what the addicts and those that they have arrested are telling them. Now, I understand that they're wanting to decriminalize it. And the main reason why they're wanting to decriminalize the use and possession of it is because right now a lot of these drugs are classified as a felony. And most of the time when you have individuals that would serve their time or they would, they would do their sentence and then get out, are, they're going to have a harder time trying to find a job. And so one of the hopes is, is by decriminalizing this and helping people get the, the help that they need in overcoming these addictions, they're going to be able to get a better job and be able to sustain and support their families. And, and I agree with that part of it. But I also understand that if we go about doing things in this way, we're not really helping these people be accountable. We're actually giving them a pass. We're giving them the excuse that they need to continue with the behavior that's causing so much pain and destruction in their lives and that of their families. So why are so many of these individuals homeless? Well, I can tell you. I had an individual that was going back to his parents' home. He was addicted to heroin, and his family had kicked him out on numerous, numerous occasions, and I had to be there present to help escort this individual out of the house or trespass him or take him into custody for being under the influence of drugs. And you could see the pain in this family's eyes not knowing what else to do. In fact, the mother came to me and she goes, well, what am I expected to do? We go to the courts. We go to the people that we're supposed to go to. We go to the attorneys. We go to the district attorneys. And we tell them and we plead with them to help us to do something to help our son. And nobody is able to give us anything. So I, I get that we don't have programs that are meeting the needs of a lot of the individuals that are addicted. I'm not saying that we don't have programs, but when you start talking to these places that provide addiction and recovery services and helping people um, going through rehab, sometimes there's a waiting list to get people in there. They are overburdened and understaffed. And so obviously... That is an area that we need to focus on and we need to start providing more funding to to help with this cause of helping people that are addicted to substances and helping them to recover. With this family, their son repeatedly would come back to the home. He would break into the house and he would steal stuff to go and sell so that he was able to get drugs for the addiction that he had. The family had put in motion detectors, cameras, everything you can think of. So when he would come in and break into the house, they could respond or get there as quickly as possible to try and catch him or 
if they got there and everything was gone and he had broke into the home, they had everything documented and they were able to give it to the police. And they were at the point where they were having to charge their son with everything and anything that could be charged with because they were looking for that help and feeling that this was the only way that they could get their son off the streets, away from the drugs, and at least in prison or in jail, he would be safe. Now, I can tell you a lot of times when you're talking to people that are in addiction and recovery, it's not until they are in jail and now they have to go through that process of of coming off of that drug and having services that are provided in jail that they can go to and take while they're there. I personally had an individual that I had arrested twice in one week for possession and driving under the influence of drugs. You can imagine my surprise when six months later I get a piece of mail in my box at the police department from the county jail, open it up, and it is from this individual thanking me for arresting him, thanking me for charging him with possession so that he went to jail. In that letter stating that this would have been the only way that he would have been able to go through a recovery process and get the help that he needed and now felt that when he was released and did the time that he was sentenced to, that he would be able to return and be more apt not to go back and relapse and use those drugs. Now, I don't know if that was the case, if he was able to do that, but this isn't something that happens every day, having people thank you for arresting them and for going out and doing your job and them actually getting the help that they needed because of it. So there are silver linings in, in the process that we have right now. Granted, they're few and far between. But as I said earlier, we just don't have a lot of the services that, that we really need. We do have a lot of volunteer organizations and services that are out there. A lot of them are, are faith-based through churches that they provide. And there are even some that have people that were previously addicted to substances and things like that that have recovered that help lead and teach and instruct in these programs because they've been there. And it gives the people that are coming in hope that they too can recover and do the same thing with other people and help them as well. So there are some things that we do have. Now, is it enough? No. Now, how does this all come into play with with drug testing in the workplace well right now with the coronavirus the pandemic that we're experiencing we're also experiencing a high level of addiction with people in participating and using drugs and or alcohol a lot of those individuals were already addicted or were in phases of recovery and now they've relapsed or they've gone back or you have people that have found these substances because of a lot of different factors that we've talked about in past episodes of Clearing the Haze, that they're looking for relief and they're looking for um, that opportunity to get away from that situation that they're in right now, even if it's just for a few moments. So when these individuals are coming back to work, they're bringing that baggage with them. And sometimes 
they know they're not going to pass a test and they may not even show up at your facility for a drug test. We have some that are coming in right now that will bring synthetic urine in with them. And we, to give you a perfect example, had an individual that came in, gave us synthetic urine, and the, the boss said, hey, let's just go ahead and give him a second try and have him test. And he gave us real urine this next time, and he passed. And when we talked to him and said, well, what were you worried about? He said, well, I smoked weed one time two weeks ago, and so I was worried that it was going to come up, and I really need this job. Well, thankfully for him, this was not a DOT position. This was not a safety-sensitive job that he was in, but it was in a, with an employer that has a drug-free workplace, but this employer also had a second-chance policy. So this individual was able to go into that second-chance policy that they have, which also gives them the opportunity to go to a substance abuse counselor, get some counseling, and then return to work and do another drug test to make sure that they're okay. And then part of their policy is, is that they have so many uh, unannounced drug tests that they're going to have to do in order to maintain and keep their job. And this is just something that helps keep them in check and lets them know, hey, we gave you a second chance. We're serious about this. Don't relapse. Don't do any of these things. And they also have the resources there for those employees to be able to utilize so that these things can be taken care of. Now, I know that I give you a lot to think about in this episode. This isn't a very simple topic that we're going to be able to solve in one podcast. But my point in bringing this forward to you is that I feel that we're so wrapped up right now on all the things that are COVID-related, whether we're looking to do tests for people we're looking to keep our doors opened and to be able to even have our employees employed. And those are the things that we're worried about right now. But meantime, individuals that are coming up with these bills and these amendments and things like that, that they're trying to get on the ballot in November are doing so hoping that we're not paying attention. Now, I'm paying attention. I think it's very important that we all pay attention right now and that we're able to address this not only with our own employees, but also to those clients that we provide services with as well, letting them know what's going on. Like I said earlier, a lot of the employers that I talked to had no idea that this House bill passed in March that decriminalized a lot of the drugs that if somebody was found in possession of, they would have gone to jail. And a lot of times if their employees did get caught you having these drugs in their possession, right now it's being dealt with like an infraction. They're given a ticket, a simple misdemeanor ticket, and that's about the size of it. So unless they report that to their employer, who's the wiser? So let your employers know what's going on with this. Tell them to start watching for behavior, behavioral clues with individuals as they return to work. Make sure that they're following their policy when it comes to drug testing. Are they just sending the person down there to the facility or are they having a supervisor take them? Are they having you respond to their workplace? And if they are, are they watching this individual until they get there, until you get there, or are they allowing them to go out to their car, continue to work, do whatever, where there's that opportunity of them utilizing 
synthetic urine or obtaining it or finding other means to not quote unquote fail the drug test. So be aware of these things and keep an eye out on that. I hope this episode helped you and it gave you a lot of things to think about here at Clearing the Haze. We're looking forward to bringing you another episode of Clearing the Haze this next week. But until then, remember, it's your vision, it's your dream, and it's your business. Take care.